Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person real or imagined, or the dark forces of Terre. It is not intended for children. I waited in warehouse number three on the Shipton Pier for the Witch Morgana to finally show up. This is the second time I was in this abandoned warehouse in the past year. I should start decorating. Things were different this time around, of course. This time I knew the escape route, and I knew what to expect, more or less. Morgana was old and powerful enough that you couldn't necessarily expect everything. So I waited, until I saw the shadows take shape. This was how Morgana had first appeared to me before, in the shadows. It's how she got around and how she stayed hidden. This time, the long shadows, created by the sun through the open door, morphed and changed shape until they were in the form of a shapely woman. A shadowy form, but shapely nonetheless, clad in a silky, flowing blue dress. I didn't react to any of it. This meeting was serious business. Still, I waited for the witch to speak first. She stared at me with her eyes narrowed. Sean Russo, you have some nerve getting in touch with me, and through the detective that I hired, too. Oh, I figured you probably didn't use Craigslist. And how did you even know I was in this city? I had actually been told she would be in Shipton by Mordred. Trade secret. You know that we paranormal Pinkertons can't squeal on informants. The witch rolled her eyes. Ugh, it was Mordred, wasn't it? That ironclad idiot. He's always getting people involved in my plans. Seems to think it gives him some sort of advantage or something. Whatever. Point is, you got in touch with me. Why? You're not prepared to give me my ring back, are you? Not quite. I needed something from Morgana, and I had considered trading the Ring of Dispel, which gave me the power to break enchantments and the gift of Elisha, the ability to see through the veil to the supernatural realities on the other side. But I had decided against it a while ago. It was way too useful, and besides, I had no idea why Morgana wanted it. But I'm not here to fight. <laughs> I should hope not. I'm here to make a deal. She snorted derisively. You. A deal. She walked closer to me, and reflexively I gripped my crucifix tighter. I knew she couldn't ensorcel me while I held it, but she was still intimidating, despite my best attempts to keep pace. Morgana switched gears. Suddenly she was... seductive. All her curves were in the right places, her eyes glowing as she looked into mine. Sean, 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 you know that I do a lot for you. There's all sorts of fun you and I could have together. But let's be honest. You and I both know that the only thing you have that I want is the Ring of Dispel. And while I may not be able to touch you directly, you can't threaten me either. By the time she'd finished speaking, Morgana had come closer still. 
I found myself unable to look away from her swaying hips. There was something hypnotic about the way they sashayed back and forth, back and forth. All women did it. She drew me in like a siren. She was just a few feet from my face now. I swallowed, but uh, kept my cool. Thinking of Violet helped. It's not something I have. It's something I can do for you. Oh, and what exactly can you do for me? I can rescue Celia Merrick. For the first time, I saw Morgan's jaw drop in shock. Then she threw her head back and started laughing. You! Rescue Celia Merrick? Oh, thank you for that. I didn't think I'd be laughing that hard today. Do you have any idea what you're saying right now? Who that girl is? Why she's even missing? Don't laugh, Morgana. It's rude. And I know the most important part. I know that blood money has her. And how do you know that? This time I gave her a grin. It was time for some misdirection. Another trade secret. Nick Sobieski helped. I gave a whistle. Nick, you can come out now. A solid-looking man, somewhat beefy but not fat, with black hair and a black mustache, walked out from inside one of the metal crates in the back. I'd asked him to wait there. The spectacle was very important. I needed to make an impression on Morgana, impress her with what I could do. Nick walked towards us business-like. Hello, Miss Merrick. I guess Morgana just used her descendant's last name when hiring him. Since hire him, she had. Morgana flared up in anger, and it took all of my willpower not to flinch at her. Why did you bring him here? Shadows danced with life around us, and stranger things, like fairies that absorbed light instead of spreading it, peered around her, floating in on the breeze. She turned towards Nick. And you! Why aren't you searching for Celia? Oh, believe me, ma'am, I am. That's why I'm here. That's why you're... Ugh. I'd never seen Morgana so surprised. It made me feel good. That's right. Detective Rousseau said it would be worth my while. And honestly, Miss Merrick, unless I misunderstood something, you weren't entirely open with me about all of the facts on this case. I'm not sure what you expect me to get done without knowing everything. Everything? Morgana turned on me. What did you tell him? I told him about the Ultra Terror, Morgana. I don't know what was going on with you to hire someone and keep him in the dark. You must have been desperate. I suppose I should talk a little bit about how Nick and I met. After my meeting with Mordred in the forest, I was struck with the problem of what to do with that information. I decided to start off by looking at the missing persons database. Sure enough, she was there. Celia Merrick. So Mordred was telling the truth about that, at least. I could see a family resemblance to Morgana. Black hair, dark eyes, and a burning willpower behind a pretty face. But how to find her? Talking to the Shipton Police for information was a laughable no-go. The Shipton Police Force is one of the most corrupt institutions in the country. You're lucky if you find three honest cops. I couldn't trust a word they said, and I doubted they'd help me anyway. Still, I did some research on Celia Merrick herself. Her father was her only close family. He was actually a former cop in the Shipton Police, a decorated officer who was forced to retire after sustaining an injury that left him paralyzed from the waist down. It had made him a minor celebrity. 
A guy like that wouldn't count on the police for help. He surely knew how corrupt they were, whether he was a part of it or not. I tried talking to Merrick myself, first over the phone, then knocking on the door, but the guy wouldn't do it. It looked like being shipped and had jaded him. Even saying his daughter's name just led to him swearing at me for 30 seconds before I could get a word in edgewise before he hung up on me. And knocking on the door just gave him an opportunity to slam it in my face. The way he acted actually made me doubt he'd hired anyone, but I didn't have any other leads to follow, so I got out the phone book and started contacting all of the private detectives in Shipton and asking if I could speak with them about Celia Merrick. It was many frustrating hours before I finally got a hit. This is a slow, plotting work of the private detective that doesn't get the glory of a well-placed explosive, but it's just as important. There was no guarantee I'd gain anything from this, and it wasn't exciting, but the sort of steady grinding away was critical to a successful case. And in this case, I did hit the jackpot on a lone practitioner who used a free WordPress site to advertise. Detective Nick Sobieski, 28 years old and a former Shipton cop himself. The website didn't say why he left. I gave him a phone call. A gruff, serious voice answered the phone. Private Detective Nicholas Sobieski speaking. Who's calling? I'm a private detective myself, calling to talk about a missing person. Do you know anything about Celia Merrick? There was a cause for so long that I was getting worried that Sobieski had hung up, but eventually he spoke. Are you telling me you have information on Celia Merrick? So you do know who she is. I should be asking you that. Why did you call? I grinned. This was the guy I was looking for. Let's meet up. Private detectives teaming up was not uncommon in the mundane world. It wasn't even particularly uncommon in the world of the Pinkertons, until the detectives stopped reporting in. We met at Nick's office, which was really the desk he had crammed into his crappy studio apartment. I could relate what with my own crappy studio apartment, though at least I didn't live in Shipton. I guess I was doing pretty well for myself. Comparatively speaking. His office was unlocked. I entered in to find... no one. The bathroom was empty as well. The office was plain, a few pictures of Nick in a SWAT uniform with a large rifle among some family portraits. The phone rang and I answered it. Sean Russo? Yeah, you got me. Detective Nicholas Sobieski? Call me Nick. Have a seat. I know it's small in here, but you're a private eye too, right? You know how it is. If you make a funny move or I think you're a spook, I'm going to plaster your brains all over the upholstery. can only improve it. I've seen some, uh, stuff on this case, and I'm not going to take any chances. All right, if you don't mind me asking, uh, where are you? The most comfortable rooftop in Shipton, about 200 yards north of none of your business. You sound like a good guy, but I can't take chances anymore. SWAT sniping usually isn't done from this distance, sure, but I guarantee you, I was the best SWAT sniper that never was. You know what? In this line of work, this wasn't even the strangest thing to happen to me in a month. I was not happy, but if this was what it takes, I answered his questions. I was from the paranormal Kinkertons. I told him what I was looking for and why. Then I told him about the Yotraterre, the strange things he's been seeing, the men who dove into shadows or turned into wolves to fight, vampiric superhumans in moonlight. There was a lot. We talked until the sun went down. Finally, he told me he'd join me in the office. 
He came in with a couple of much-appreciated cups of coffee. That Morgan Merrick is Morgana Le Fay was harder to convince him. I had to give it to him. He did have a strong grasp of client privacy. I had Nick tell her that Sean Russo was looking for her, then had him watching from a distance the whole time, close enough to see and hear everything. Uh, back to warehouse number three. Morgana looked murderously angry, and for a second I thought I went too far. All right, Russo, I admit you surprised me. And Nick, sweetie, you may come to regret you did this later. But fine, you're initiated now. I don't know what you're seeing, but I guarantee you, you're barely seeing half at most. But at least it's the half that can hurt you. Watch your back. Sean, what was the point to all of this? It's, uh, like I said earlier, I want to make a deal with you. I helped Nick rescue Celia Merrick, and in return, she checked her fingernails and pretended to be bored. Do tell, Shawnee. What exactly am I doing in return? You remove this curse from me. Morgana looked at me confused and started laughing. You mean the spell of protection? That's the one. Why on earth do you want that removed? It's starting to affect innocent people, and I can't have that. Bad for business. Bad for... Morgana shook her head like she was clearing the cobwebs, then opened up her arms and gave a huge smile. Creep me out. Very well, Sean Russo. You've convinced me. You have a deal. I blinked. I do? You do. You and Nick have two weeks. In two weeks, I need to see Celia Merrick alive and well, and out of the clutches of any, uh, dastardly kidnappers. In return, I will remove my... curse. My jaw dropped. Two weeks? Cases like this can take years before they're resolved. You can't possibly... Two weeks, Detective Russo. And... Nick stepped forward. Uh, Miss Merrick, I must insist. Don't you worry your little head about it, Detective Sobieski. While your actions here were, uh, disappointing, you're not the one with the time clock. Your pay will not be affected. But Detective Russo, if I'm agreeing to this deal, I think I should be allowed to set terms as well. And it is this. If you do not find Celia Merrick in two weeks, the Ring of Dispel is mine. I figured that would be on the table. I didn't like the short timeline. I wasn't kidding about cases of this sort potentially taking years, but I couldn't see a choice. Fine. It's a deal. If Nick and I can bring back Celia Merrick alive and, uh, in control of her faculties, in two weeks, you remove your curse from me. If not, you get the Ring of Dispel. Morgana's wicked smile grew even broader. You said it, Detective Russo. Now you are bound to your word as I am to mine. Don't disappoint me. With that, she started disappearing back into the shadows. Nick ran forward. Wait, Miss Merrick! But it was too late. Morgana was gone. Nick looked around where she had been standing. Then he walked away slowly and sat down next to the wall of the warehouse, looking shell-shocked. I walked towards him. Ed, Nick, are... Are you okay? Sh sure, sure. I'm fine. Just just give me a second here, okay? I understood. 
I remembered the day that I learned that the Otraterra was real. That sort of revelation takes a lot out of you. It's not just seeing something, it's seeing something you can't argue against, ever, or for any reason. Even a werewolf can be explained away by a murderous furry. Is it logical? No, it's an untenable argument under any scrutiny, but your brain will accept it. Now, no refuge from my new friend. He has to face it all. Still, it wasn't long before Nick stood up. Okay, I'm ready. I don't really understand everything that's going on, but I'm ready. Where do we start? So I told Nick what had happened on my last unofficial case. See the file labeled Forest of Fear for details. The notable part was that I knew, or at least I had a pretty good guess from my interrogation of Julius the Vampire, that Blood Money was taking charge of the vampires in Shipton. And I knew from Mordred that the vampires were interested in Celia Merrick. And from the way Mordred talked about her, it was that the vampires wanted her, meaning she's probably still alive. I also talked about the big burn back from when he was a kid. That and the werewolves made a lot of tumblers click in his head. He didn't understand it all, but his worldview survived the paradigm shift. We decided that Celia was probably a captive and not a slave. If she was a slave, Blood Money wouldn't keep her hidden away. He'd have won. He'd use her. Probably. All of this was based on maybes and probablys, but it was all we had. Maybe Nick was right and she was murdered by a crackhead and stuffed into a dumpster, but I tried not to think about that. Nick handled it all much better than I did when I first learned about it. Truthfully, I admired Nick. I had reached a sort of peace with my purpose in life as a paranormal Pinkerton, but to reach where I was, I had to hit rock bottom, have everything I valued torn away from me, and then build everything back up again from the ground up. Nick, though, he was just a good man. He didn't need to have everything ripped away from him to learn what was really important. Nick did this job because he wanted to help the people of Shipton. And believe me, the people of Shipton needed the help. Two weeks was very little time. Nick didn't have the deadline looming the way I did, but this was still a missing persons case and a dangerous one at that. So both of us worked through the night. Nick took the mundane route in the case. He went around interviewing the last people to talk to Celia, who lived with her father and worked as a waitress at a local restaurant. As I figured, there wasn't a lot to go on here. Celia disappeared on her way home from work one day. Apparently, she lived two blocks away and walked home every day, which is, of course, incredibly dangerous in Shipton. We figured she could get away with it more than most because people knew of her father. Nobody noticed anyone paying undue attention to her, not more than normal. Miss Merrick was considered something of a looker, and was apparently skilled at getting high tips. But she also had a knack for, uh, quoting her manager, keeping the boys in line. Nick followed up with everyone he could, but it wasn't going anywhere. I figured it wouldn't. I took a different tack. While Nick did the standard private eye thing, I tried to use my connections in the Shipton underworld, and that meant making a call to Paul DuPont. Paul was a werewolf whose life I saved a few months ago in a previous trip to Shipton. Paul tried to square off with a blood money agent, and I ended up caught in the crossfire. Fast forward to the end of that little adventure, and we have one dead werewolf hunter, courtesy of little old me. He could see the file hunted for details. So, Paul owed me. Was that how he saw it? I'm not sure. I hoped so. Paul wasn't like my old friend Phil. Phil was an inside man, a guy I could count on. Once. Paul was just a guy I crossed paths with once and who hopefully had enough of a sense of honor, treat me with a little more courtesy than most werewolves. 
which is a low bar to clear, I guess. I got his number from a priest friend I know who often dealt with the underworld elements, and if you're wondering, I asked him first off if he had anything to add to the case. The best he could do was express condolences. No leads. When I got Paul on the phone, I would describe his tone as, uh, irritated. I think that was normal. Paul Dupont, it's Detective Sean Russo, paranormal Pinkerton. I'm calling in a favor. Paul made a sound on the other end of the line that sounded like an angry snarl. I held the phone away from my ear reflexively. You! You got some nerve calling me. What makes you think I owe you shit, detective? I saved your life and you know it, DuPont. There's a debt there. Huh. Saved your own skin, too, if I remember right. I'm not going to be your inside man, detective. Relax. I'm not asking about the wolves. It's about the vampires. What makes you think I know anything about what those psychos are up to? I'll can it with the games, DuPont. You were going head-to-head -head with them months ago, and you want me to believe you're not on them like a tick on a dog's ass? The trick with werewolves is that you need to talk to them on their level. Don't be intimidated, don't back down. The second you do is the second you lose, and probably die. Paul stayed silent for a moment. Then, warehouse number three. What is it with that warehouse? This is the only chance I'm giving you, detective, so make it there. Paul had caught me off guard. Wait, you don't even know what I need to ask you about yet. I'm not just going to tell you what you want to hear, detective. I have information on the vampires, and that's all there is to it. Take it or leave it. I cursed silently to myself and checked my phone for the time. 2.10. Fine, I'll be there. Nick looked over at me curiously. I was making the call from his tiny, crappy apartment. What's going on? I have a meeting with an informant. If you're going... Nick was cut off by a knock on the door. But something was off. The knock was... More aggressive than normal? Louder. Harder. A voice on the other side of the door yelled, Detective Sobieski, open up! Nick turned towards me and pointed towards his bathroom. I understood immediately. Right now, the guy doing the public pavement pounding was Nick. So as far as the vampires knew, I wasn't on the case. We were careful about that. We didn't want to alert blood money that a paranormal Pinkerton was onto him. We have, uh... History... I hid in the bathroom, but carefully pointed my handgun through the crack in the door. If it was a vampire, bullets wouldn't kill him, but they'd slow him down. Nick yelled out, Heading over! He opened the door to another gangbanger, the same sort that I'd seen accost me back in the Pine Barrens. He was slathered head to toe in sunscreen. I had a few theories about that. The vampire swaggered his way into the room, backing Nick up so quickly he nearly tripped. Nick gave the vampire a professional smile. His hand crept to the gun at his back. Private Detective Nick Sobieski at your service. What can I do for you? So, so you're the guy looking for Celia Merrick? I got a message for you. And what sort of message would that be? Back off. Drop the case. Nick kept his pleasant smile. Even as the vampire walked over to his desk and started casually rifling through his paperwork throwing knickknacks and office supplies on the floor as he trashed it. I'm sure you'll understand me when I say that dropping the case is simply not an option. Make it an option. That's not how it works. 
The vampire had his feet up at Nick's desk. He listened to Nick and said, Not how it works, huh? It's just that simple. Before Nick could respond, the vampire kicked over Nick's desk. He stood up and with a motion so fast I could barely follow it, he rabbit-punched Nick square in the nose. Taken by surprise, Nick stumbled backward onto the ground. Blood spurted from his nose. Nick pulled his handgun, but the vampire kicked his hand, knocking the gun to the mess he made. If we see you snooping about Celia Merrick again, there'll be blood coming out from more than your nose, dig? Simple enough for you? He left the room, slamming the door so hard one of the windows cracked. As soon as the vampire left, Nick turned towards me. He motioned in my direction and mouthed, Go! I turned around and grinned. The bathroom just so happened to be right next to the fire escape. I booked it as fast as I could. It was time to start tracking. I made it to the roof of Nick's building and watched the vampire from my high vantage point for as long as I could. The longer I could go without actually tracking him alley to alley, the less chance I had of being spotted. I only realized I was going to be in danger of losing him a block down when he turned down the side road. I memorized the street and started my sprint. Tracking someone on foot is tricky business. One way to get away with it is to try and stay above them so you can see what directions they're heading from distance. Shipton was luckily good for us with its many high-rise apartment complexes. Nick told me how to handle the canopy of the concrete jungle. Sure, it was a little awkward to run past the windows of people who were probably very confused why I was running up the fire escape, but it was better than being caught. And if this really was a vampire, I had to be doubly careful with their heightened senses. This was the first chance I'd had to really explore Shipton. It was a grimy, depressing place. All of the apartment buildings I ran up and down, up and down, were falling apart. Each time I flashed past a window, you got a new little tableau of human misery. Angry husbands shouting at sobbing wives or girlfriends. Women staring into the ceiling, drugs in hand. As small children sat alone two feet from a television with dirty dishes piled around them. Kids in middle and elementary school getting so high on marijuana you could barely make out faces. All of these things flashed before me as I ran past and I tried not to reflect on what the hell this rotten city had become. Eventually I stopped being able to think about this stuff. The constant running was exhausting and I had to focus on keeping track of this vampire. The good news is, he was heading through back roads, so no constant crowd crush so common in cities of any size. If there was a shadow he could walk under, he took it, sunscreen or not. It felt like hours, but was probably about 15 minutes or so before I spot a familiar sight. The warehouse is at Shipton's Pier. Shipton's Pier? Is there a hideout in one of the warehouses? But no. The vampire kept walking past the warehouses, and walking, and walking, to a dock at the end of the pier, where to my astonishment, he got into a small covered motorboat and away he went. I watched him from around the corner at warehouse number three about a hundred yards out. The flashy motorboat went straight out to the horizon before eventually disappearing from sight. Before I could reflect on what I had seen, a voice made me nearly jump out of my skin. You're a little early, detective. The werewolf Paul Dupont, a rough-looking guy with slick-back brown hair and a leather jacket, was standing directly behind me. Apparently the vampire wasn't the only one who'd been tracked. So are you. Get over it. I ain't explained myself to you. You tracking that vampire? That thing stank. It ain't hard to smell on a guy, even beneath that disgusting sunscreen. Not to mention you, detective. Get some deodorant on, you are rank. And you look like you just got out of a shower. 
After the amount of running I just did, people wish they could smell this good, believe me. DuPont, we're both here. What do you have for me? DuPont scowled at me. Not a lot, but maybe it'll interest you. First thing is this. The vampires are planning something big. Big? What do you mean, big? I mean, there's been more movement from them than normal lately. We're talking meetings with politicians, stocking up on food, stuff like that. Their leadership never shows itself, but we know that they're out there. Any idea what it all means? No. We're all trying to work it out too, detective. Food, water, every now and then some poor bastard they're gonna use for blood gets transported on that motorboat daily. More every day. My best guess is that a ship is out there, and it's key to everything. I whistled. What are you guys doing about it? Dupont's scowl grew deeper. None of the bosses will approve an attack on their boat out there. We lost a lot of good wolves in the big burn. They've still got the scars, even though we have more members than ever. Also, ask another question about us and I leave. Or maybe I'll tell you and take a pound of flesh and blood as payment. All right, all right, I'll back off. Just got one more question for you, and it's about the vampires. What is it? I know you wolves know their hideaways around the city. Any, uh, non-vampires being kept there? What does that mean? I mean, is there a non-vampire hanging around any of the vampires' usual haunts? With your noses, I know you guys could tell. DuPont squinted at me. I don't know what you're trying to get at, detective, but the vampire haunts are being used by the vampires, nobody else. Well, unless they're food. They don't last long. I was disappointed, but nodded. Uh, that's all. Thanks, DuPont. You've been a help. DuPont gave me a long look. Yeah, well, watch yourself, detective. I don't know and don't care about whatever it is you're doing, but things are getting dangerous out there. Real dangerous. Shipton's never been a safe place, but I've never seen it like this before. Even the young pups are more savage. He absentmindedly scratched his chest. He wasn't really talking to me. He snapped up with a smile that was more of a snarl. Though I hope whatever you do really ruins whatever the vampires have planned. I nodded. Don't worry about me. I can take care of myself. DuPont gave a nod and walked back to the city. Meanwhile, I made a phone call. Nick, it's Sean. We have a lead. You ever do a stakeout before? This is crazy. Absolutely insane. Crazy. Nick didn't dare shout it into the cold ocean air, but nevertheless, I knew what he was thinking because he said enough going in. He continued paddling your little rubber life raft with me through the rough water. It was pouring out, and though it was finally spring, it wasn't far enough in for the nights not to be bitterly cold, and you were drenched in driving rain. We rode towards a big ship. Not luxury ship size, but big. It had taken some time, but we had found the home base of the motorboats, tracking and triangulating the movements until we had a location. We struck that very night. And now, we were here. Nick was right. This was an insane plan. And you know, something wasn't right about it. A lot of other boats had been out today, and Shipton isn't known for its marinas. As we got closer to the ship, we could hear music playing on the inside, and though it was faint through the rain, talking and laughter as well. What were we missing? 
Next to me, Nick gasped, so loudly that I could hear him, even through the rain. He sat down on the life raft while I prepared a grappling hook. He was conflicted, twitchy. Something in his eyes I did not like the look of. I looked at him curiously. What's up? I know what this is. It's bad. We've got to change plans. Everything is different. Nick was starting to creep me out. What the hell are you talking about, Nick? Okay, I know you wouldn't know this, but there's been talk of a massive party for all the bigwigs. A lot of my cop buddies, off Force Oron, get hired on the side to run protection and just look good in a uniform for events. It's rarely interesting, but good for the bonus check. It's mostly to impress really important investors, the fat cats, and bosses, and make sure no one crashes a party. I heard some guys got hired for a party. A party that was on a ship. I'll give it to Nick. He got it faster than I would have. It clicked in my head in one terrible moment. I sat down suddenly, too. No way. No way. Nick nodded, his face as pale as a sheet. Felt all the color drain out of my own face. This... This is the boat, isn't it? That's Blood Money's plan. He's gonna try and mind control all of the biggest movers and shakers in Shipton. Nick nodded. My mind reeled as I considered our options. Stood back up and grabbed the grappling hook. Okay, Nick. I know you're still new to the Otraterre, but we really do have a serious situation here, about as serious as it gets. New priority is, somehow, stopping blood money at all costs. Nick frowned. If Celia Merrick is on this boat, I'm not just abandoning her. I'm not saying to abandon her. I'm saying we need to do something about this. Nick thought about it for a moment. Here's my proposal. I search for Merrick. You handle blood money. On your own? I'll be careful. I'll scope out areas from a distance and make good use of that crossbow you lent me. And my gun is loaded with silver bullets, so when I go for her, I'll be in less danger than you. Any human cost will let me go as long as I'm here to save a girl. The guys do have their standards. You'd be surprised how many human traffickers commit suicide in holding. The rest... Well, I just have to shoot first before they get their fangs out, right? I mean, I get that, Nick. It's just, this is your first time really dealing with the Terror. Nick clasped me on the shoulder. I'm a private detective, and I've been hired to find Celia Merrick. I can do this, Sean. I hesitated, then nodded. I had to trust him. Okay, here's the plan. If they're having a party, I'll bet any amount of money Blood Money is playing to make a speech in front of everyone, which is when he takes control. I didn't mention that for all I know, he could have already made the speech. What's the point? I had to proceed under the assumption we still had a shot. In order for the control to work, you need eye contact and you need to hear the voice. Both are potent alone, but not irresistible. Center stage during a party... Listen, I have the Ring of Dispel, so I'm safe. We got our combustibles from the Pinkerton stash, so I'll rig up a fuse and bomb the engine room. Blood money can take you, but not me. As for you, be careful. Use mirrors to look around corners. You're going to bomb the engine? Just as a distraction. It's potent enough to ruin the engine, not reenact the Titanic. There should be plenty of time to get everybody onto lifeboats. Nick thought about it, then nodded. Gotcha. If I find Merrick, I'll contact you. Nick and I stared at each other in the rain for a moment, then I held out my hand. Nick grasped it. You're a good man, Nick. 
You too, Sean. And I heaved the grappling hook up the side of the ship. The hook caught on the edge, and together Nick and I climbed up onto the boat. I'm not sure how to describe the boat. I don't know boats, and anyway, it was dark and rainy. The boat was big. On the far end, there was a bouncer standing outside of a door that I assumed went to the ballroom with the dancers. He's partially hidden by an overhang and luckily wasn't looking for us. There were some cops in uniform clustered under a few places, sharing flasks and drugs with a couple of white and black clad servers. There was activity. It looked like the party was in full swing, but not ready yet for blood money. Luck, luck, luck. Everything was so dependent on luck. Hope that Celia is alive. Hope that Blood Bunny hasn't gotten to the partygoers yet and wouldn't until I was ready. Hope we end up in a spot where we aren't spotted when we end up on the ship for the first time. The word here is desperation. Most of the time, this would be a mission I'd be preparing for with a team of paranormal Pinkertons, and we'd bring all of our resources to bear onto this case. I'd have one or two guys backing me and Nick up, and maybe even a hacker or remote viewer keeping an eye on the situation. The way old Tom talked, the 1980s to 90s, was the paranormal Pinkerton heyday, and nothing was beyond us. Now, we had no such luxury. It was down to Nick and me, our intelligence, our guts, and yes, hopefully just a little bit of luck. Maybe that's what it had been, had always been. It's just that there was more once, and I barely knew what I was missing. As soon as we made it on, we hid behind a door on the other end of the boat that went to the bows of the ship. Underneath was a hallway lit with fluorescent lights. This was where Nick and I split up. Before the mission, we'd visited a Pinkerton stash and taken some of the standard supplies, which we were carrying in waterproof bags on our backs. Classic Pinkerton combustibles that I was using to rig into an explosive, along with silver bullets for our handguns and waterproof radios with earpieces for communication. I also made sure Nick brought mirrors to look around corners and high-quality earplugs. I never properly told Nick what the combustibles were for, and he didn't ask. It's been a staple of paranormal Pinkerton supply stashes since I joined the organization. <sighs> I'm glad he took the plan well. And each of us brought a crossbow with wooden bolts, courtesy of a design from old Tom. The interior of the ship, away from the party, lights and servers, was a vaguely eerie place. The light in the empty hallways had a very dull glow, and you could still hear the patter of the rain outside. I had no clue where I was going. I just had this vague idea I had to go deeper into the ship's bowels. The signs were mostly inaccurate, but there was enough to find the cavernous engine rooms. Pipes and pistons lined walls in the center like some sort of metallic temple. It was the heart of the ship and pumped in a sequence as regular as clockwork. The whole room was at the level of a dull roar. I ran to the middle of the room and took out my waterproof bag. It was time I got to work. But before I could start, I heard a gun click and a familiar voice. Sean Russo, hands in the air and back away slowly. I turned around. A big man was standing in front of me in an impeccable suit. He had a corsage on his chest and a blood-red tie. He was clean-shaven but had long brown hair. And though he was very, very different from the last time I'd seen him, I recognized him immediately. My old friend turned enemy, Phil. Back in an earlier case, see the case file labeled Bad Service for details. I learned that Phil had turned traitor and worked with blood money. We got into a standoff and I was forced to shoot him. In the immediate aftermath, I thought I had killed him. But in truth by now, I was getting pretty sure he'd survived. 
there was absolutely no record of his death anywhere, and I was looking out for it from various contacts. I didn't know where he was or what he was up to, but I figured he was out there. He had accepted vampirism. Maybe he had enough regenerations to keep him alive. I would have to leave a larger exit wound this time. Uh, I don't think I'll move, thanks. I'd been in this situation before. Phil didn't smile and tossed his gun away. Guess I'll have to move you then. And with a snarl, his body started to transform. Nothing broke the skin, but his bones cracked and changed, and muscles rippled with the changes in his posture. My eyes widened. Huh, that's a new trick. I thought you gave up that stuff unless the moon forced you into it. Phil's teeth elongated, but he managed to speak. He bit off a chunk of his tongue in the attempt. I'm not the man you knew anymore, Sean Russo. And Phil lunged at me, the suit ripping off of him like gift wrapping on Christmas morning, his form more wolf than man. It happened so fast I barely saw the fur bursting out of his skin, his skull shattering and reforming and his fingers lengthening to lethal weapons. I had managed to draw my silver bullet's handgun and got a shot off, but he effortlessly batted at my hand with his paw. The gun went flying and Phil was on top of me and snapping at my throat with a mouthful of uncanine-like fangs, a werewolf's face and a vampire's teeth. The bullet had grazed his face and he was bleeding like a stuck pig, the edges burning and refusing to heal. I needed to do something and I had no ideas. Morgana's spell of protection still affected me, but I had no clue how it worked. It wasn't unstoppable. I'd gotten pretty badly injured in my crash in the Appalachian Mountains. Did it only work on creatures of the Ultra Terror, magic spells? Did it warp reality in some way, send out some signal that I was marked? I had no clue. While I pushed back at Phil's face, I decided to play my last card. The Gift of Gab. Phil, listen to me. I don't know what blood money has done to you, but I can help you. I promise. I know people. I have resources. You don't need to be his slave. Phil snarled, but he spoke. You never did get what I had to go through, Sean. Never! You had no idea what my life was like. The pain, the misery, people looking down on me every minute of my life. You don't have to be blood money slave. It's not the answer to your past. Phil raised up a paw and struck me in the head. I saw stars and felt the blood begin to flow as his claws ripped into my skin. The wound was shallow, but head wounds are scary bloody. I'm nobody's slave, Sean Russo. I asked for this. All your preaching and big ideas mean nothing without respect. I'm Blood Money's right-hand man. When we have this city under our thumb, I'll crush the werewolves. Be the alpha I was always meant to be. What do I care if some pathetic humans get eaten by vampires, or some corrupt politicians are mind-controlled? I'll have everything I ever wanted. My heart sank at that. I had been hoping against hope that Phil was just a puppet. Because if he was, there was still a slim chance we could save him one day. No power of the Terre was ever absolute in the face of Jesus Christ. But it did give me an idea. Phil was a werewolf, so silver affected him, but he also had vampiric powers. This made him even stronger and even more powerful, and with someone who didn't have a ring like mine, he might have mind control abilities or something else. But he also had vampiric weaknesses. His face wound still hadn't begun to heal. I had an idea. Phil lunged at me again as I tried to scramble back, my hands desperately clutching at my waterproof bag. 
He had me pinned to the ground, one hand on his throat, pushing up as his snapping jaws inch closer to my neck. With my other hand, I dug through the bag and, mercifully, I managed to grasp what I was looking for. A crossbow bolt. Made of wood. Perfect for killing vampires. With a yell of desperation and adrenaline, I jammed the crossbow bolt as hard as I could into Phil's neck with my one free hand. I would have gone for the head or the heart, but the position wasn't right. I just have to hope it was enough. Phil gave a horrible hacking noise and fell off of me, transforming into a human as he went. Blood spurted out of his mouth as he wheezed and choked, and his naked body clutched at his bloodied neck. I saw him weakly try to rip out the bolt, but the blood loss got to him, and his hand slipped off the wood. He collapsed with a gurgling breath and didn't move. I wasn't sure what weaknesses played with each other against him, but it was enough. I didn't waste time. As soon as Phil was off me, I got back to my bomb. I wanted to check on and handle Phil, but every second was a second that blood money could make his move. I tried not to think about the possibility that there was no point to any of this, that it was too late, that I might be a failure. I rigged up the bomb in the fuse just the way Jack liked it, then sprinted back out. I was running blind, desperately hoping not to run to anyone else on the way. I wondered how Nick was holding up. I hoped he was okay. He hadn't said anything over the radio since we separated. I don't know how long it took. Surely less than five minutes. But somehow I blundered out onto the deck of the ship again, looking like a bloody mess. The rain was still coming down hard, but this time there was no guard in the other end of the boat outside of the ballroom. I wondered if Phil was the guard or if a guard had been dispatched to handle Nick. For a snooty politician's bash, it sure seemed wild. The only thing that gave it away as high class were the fancy clothes everyone was wearing. In the back of the room there were pillars, obviously just support columns to hold up the roof. Or maybe they were decorative. I didn't care. I just hid behind one and waited, praying. Even the servers were in here and all the cops I had seen on the deck. None of them paid attention to me. They were waiting for something. I wasn't too late. Before I could consider this more seriously, the music stopped playing. A swell of noise from the people rose up briefly, then died down. A single light appeared on the stage at the other end of the room. And Blood Money walked out. I had never seen Blood Money before, but it was immediately obvious it was him. Even through the Ring of Dispel, his presence was... Overwhelming. I don't know how to describe it, except you had to pay attention to him. I kept an eye on him, but I tried to make sure in the back of my mind to remember the reasons I was watching him. Blood Money was a black man with cornrows who wore a pinstripe suit and pork pie hat, old-fashioned but with an unmistakable gangster's edge. He smiled like a fox in an undefended henhouse. It was more refined than the description Tom had given, but maybe after forty years he changed his image. Either way, he stood out. He gave a grin. How are y'all doing tonight? Everybody cheered. Good to hear it, good to hear it. Now I know you may not recognize me on sight yet, but that's just fine. You can call me Blood Money from now on. All my friends do. How about everyone say it? Say, hi, Blood Money. Real nice and polite-like. The whole room gave a yell of, hi, Blood Money. I had to physically restrain myself from doing the same. I felt that urge, that power to listen to what he said, and even the desire to give in. 
It was just that the ring gave me a chance to resist. Blood Money had his hand up to his ear, and when he heard everyone speak, he laughed. Now that is good to hear. Oh yes, sir, that's the good shit. And you know, I think I recognize some of you. There's a chief of police with his arms around two lovely ladies. Lucky his wife ain't here. Alderman Roberts, I think I saw you enjoy some party favors. And of course, Mr. Mayor, it sure is nice to see you here. Not to mention some of the biggest business owners in town. I treat my friends well, don't I? Really is a hell of a party. But, he paused and his grin grew wider. I could see the fangs. I had lost count. I prayed for the bomb to go off. I decided if it didn't within the next 30 seconds, I was going to jump out and just take a pot shot at Blood Money from where I was. It was a long shot, but I was running out of options. I think it's time I made it even better. Y'all are all doing alright for yourselves, but there's more. I can help you reach your... full potential? First thing that needs to happen is this, though. Everybody here needs to... And then... Thank God it finally happened. I heard an explosion in the background. I exhaled a breath I didn't know I was holding. The room's dim lights flickered and sputtered out, and Blood Money's microphone cut off. I took the opportunity to speak up. Everybody, we need to remain calm. It appears there was an issue in the engine room. We need to evacuate the ship. Please move out to the lifeboats in a calm and orderly fashion, and we'll signal the Coast Guard for help. Everybody turned in my direction, but I knew none of them could see me in the dark. And more importantly, until all of our eyes adjusted, none of them could see Blood Money either. He needs the visuals and the voice for full control, so at least the people further away from him were safe for now. He was looking around, distracted. A couple of his minions came to him, pulling his attention away. A crush of people had started to make their way towards the exit. I joined them, attempting to blend into the crowd. As I walked, to my shock, I heard a voice crackle in my ear. I got her, Sean. I got Celia. It took all of my self-control not to start yelling. You... You... What? Is she alive? She's alive, but not conscious. What they did to her, Sean. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty at all, but I got her. Okay. Celia and I are in the raft, same spot we came in. I'll cover you. Make your way to us. On it. Keep an eye out. I, uh, crashed the party. As I finished speaking, I felt something wash over me. Something like... I don't know how to explain it. Ever get the feeling of someone stepping over your grave? That, but ten times stronger. Blood money had seen me. I turned around. Blood Money was a few hundred feet away, but he was definitely looking straight at me, and he looked furious. I must have stuck out like a sore thumb, bleeding like a stuck pig. I had to leave. I broke into a run, shoving people out of the way as I went. Hey, you! Cracker! Slow down! I could feel the influence of his voice, but I resisted, speeding up instead. I heard Blood Money yell, Stop that man! He's the one who wrecked the engine. All of a sudden, the crush of people had become an enemy, and I had to fight to escape. I became a wild animal, kicking, pushing, and shoving, throwing people to the ground. 
I was drowning in bodies, fat and drunk, but bodies throwing themselves at me. Their panic gave them strength and made them fight themselves as much as me. Three important-looking men ripped my shirt off, even as the screaming arm candy carted in front of me like water, even as they tried to scratch at me. I couldn't breathe. Blood money got closer. It was a desperate race to reach the other end of the boat. It felt like I was fighting for hours, but was probably thirty seconds when I miraculously pushed my way out to the other side of the crowd. Everyone was screaming and rolling in madness and panic. Desperate to save themselves, desperate to get me, desperate not to die. I started sprinting towards the edge of the boat, only for my joy to be short-lived. Blood money had made it to the edge of the crowd, too. With the supernatural speed and strength of a vampire, he leapt across the length of the ship, jumping from rail to rail. Before I could dive into the water below, he grabbed me by the throat and lifted me in the air. I kicked and squirmed hopelessly as blood money punched me in the face, just to establish dominance. You, Cracker, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you did. I don't know why you aren't my slave right now. If I can't keep you, it looks like I'll just have to kill you. He started squeezing the life out of me and I felt my vision go fuzzy. A loud crack filled the night air and blood money gave a cry of shock and fell backwards. I didn't take time to question it, but threw myself into the sea. A hand grabbed me and pulled me onto a life raft. Nick! I coughed and sputtered. Nick didn't take the time to check on me, choosing instead to take the opportunity to start us moving away from the boat. Same choice I would have made. I looked at Nick. One of his sleeves was ripped off, and I noticed he was doing everything with his left arm dangling at his side. But he was alive and a young woman was lying unconscious in front of him. I worked hard on breathing. Celia Merrick. And it was obvious to both of us it was her. She was the spitting image of Morgana, even more than the picture, if Morgana had been starved, beaten, and worse for weeks on end. Yet the family resemblance was undeniable. I sat up and grabbed a paddle. That was one hell of a shot! Nick kept paddling. That was probably the most difficult shot I've ever made. You really must have someone looking out for you, Sean. I was about to say not for long, but stop myself. I guess so, Nick. I guess so. Then... You know he's alive, right? Bullets won't stop him. Just slow him down. I know, Sean. Don't worry. I'll put a stop to him. It was a bold claim, and Nick looked over my shoulder when he said it. I could see his face. I believed him. Celia woke up in three days. Morgana was true to her word and removed the spell of protection. Nick kept his office open with a promise to let me know if there was anything I could help him with. Oh, and me? I listened to Jack Morrow's call and made my way to the Midwest to wait for the next half. Looks like something big is about to go down. I just hope he and Jim know what they're doing. I hope I know, too. Sean Russo, signing off. For now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio. Licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international license. This episode was written 
and performed by Anthony Marchetta. Ben Wheeler edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Ken Dickinson is our sound editor, audio editor. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on superversivesf.com, and wherever podcasts are distributed, you'll find us. Contact us through Twitter at Pinkerton's Ghosts, or email us at pinkertonsghosts at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.